Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hi, I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. We'd like to thank you for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your can also support the podcast by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash soundtrackcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, you can go to soundtrackyourlife.net and fill out the form there. So uh, Brandis and Nicole are back today. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and I think today we're not going to just hate on a soundtrack. Nope. Today we are going to talk about the 2006 Mark Forster film Stranger Than Fiction which we all actually own on DVD, I found out today. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of talk about DVDs, and I think this is maybe a soundtrack your life first and that we all really like this film. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're all big fans. Universally beloved films, the three of us actually agree on something, <laughs> which I feel like I need an air horn or something <laughs> to commemorate this moment that we all actually like this soundtrack and film. Yeah, we need like sound effects of like people cheering and clapping in the background. And it hasn't become problematic and it hasn't aged mm-hmm. poorly. No. Right. The true irony though is that it's the one film that we were really excited to revisit and rewatch because as Ryan said, it's from 2006. So it's not a new film. And we're like, oh great, we're gonna rewatch Stranger the Fish. It's so great. It's like one of my favorites, right? It's such a like unsung Will Ferrell classic. And then we all go to stream it. And lo and behold, it is not streamable anywhere. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Not even for money. I couldn't even pay for it on Amazon. It's not there. I believe if you live in the UK, maybe Canada, if you're fortunate enough to live in another region, you can rewatch or watch Stranger Than Fiction. Um, If you live in the US like us, you are SOL. You cannot watch this film, which is so unfortunate. And do we know why Sony is not giving us this film? I assume it has something to do with licensing. Yeah, I just why hasn't anyone? I mean, so many movies, like you know, streaming companies have gone and purchased the license. It's just why not this one? Like, there's some sort of, there has to be some sort of weird story because it's not that obscure, right? Yeah. Like, it has huge name people. Like, you have Will Will Ferrell, like one of the first movies where he plays like the straight character, right? Where it's not him being like totally off the wall, like, you know, typical Will Ferrell. And it has Emma Thompson and Queen Latifah and, like, all of these people who deliver such amazing performances, you know? So, like, it's by no means, like, some tiny, random, obscure film that, like, major streamers would not pick up. There's no reason no. for them not to. So there has to be some sort of, like, there's a grudge. Someone's holding on to the rights. They will not release those rights to anyone who wants to stream it. Like, something's happening there. Honestly, if someone out there knows why you can't stream Stranger Than Fiction, please tell us because we were all desperately looking in our closets for a bunch of dusty DVDs that we couldn't play because we don't have DVD players hooked up. But it really feels it really feels mean. It's like it's the Will Ferrell movie that they don't want you to see. 
Like, what is Sony hiding? Because it's such a great film, and it might have been overshadowed by some other films that are kind of similar in, like, a surrealistic vein from the period, like I Heart Huckabees, um, Eternal Sunshine. Like, maybe it got overshadowed in some way, and it doesn't have the fandom it deserves of this movie is, is great. Yeah, it's really weird. Not even like a cursory Google of like, why can't I watch Stranger Than Fiction? <laughs> totally. This is the second Google hit, as Ryan pointed out, is why can't I stream this? Where is it? Um, it's not there. And my guess is it's not the soundtrack. I mean, it's a killer soundtrack, and that's part of the reason we're talking about this today. But, you know, I don't think Spoon or Restless Eric or Delta 5 maybe the jam. <laughs> Like, there doesn't seem to be, like, any sort of, like, major, like, oh, we need to pay the Rolling Stones another half a million dollars. <laughs> you know, like, it seems like it shouldn't be, like, the music licensing that's, that's you know, stopping this. It seems like it should be, I don't want to say affordable, but it shouldn't be, like, a deal breaker <laughs> in being able to put this movie on streaming. Absolutely not. So it strikes me as really bizarre because everything being, you know, super readily available and this not being some kind of ancient film because it's from 2006, it's not a relic. It should be available. It isn't. There are probably people that know this movie, arguably, maybe more for the soundtrack than they do for the movie itself. As Ryan said, Britt Daniel heavily involved in the soundtrack. Um, the book I write was written for this film. So if you were a fan of that single, you may have found the single before you found the film. Maybe that's still the case. I don't know. You're on Spotify and like the movie artwork comes up and you're like, what the fuck is this? Why is there a picture of Will Ferrell? Yeah, there's actually quite a few original songs like on the soundtrack. Like if you count that one, then there's at least one, two, three, four or more like original songs specifically just for this movie. So this is something kind of funny. So Britt Daniel is the lead singer of Spoon. And maybe you've heard of Spoon, maybe you haven't. But in 2006, they list him as the sole composer of the score. But when I looked up the soundtrack recently, it says that he composed it with Brian Reitzel, who is from Red Cross. He's played live with air. He's actually a really great soundtrack supervisor he did movies such as lost in translation friday night lights as a supervisor so you know definitely i feel like as far as soundtracks go like someone that's worth mentioning but in 2006 they were like no we're just gonna market this as a brit daniel score which i think is kind of funny spoon is i guess big but in my opinion not like we need to leave people off the credits because we need to really just market that it's a spoon score <laughs> Well, Spoon is, um, they're not big in terms of name recognition, but I feel like they're one of those indie bands that's really like, they're like stealth hit makers. Because if you look up the amount of Spoon songs that have been used in films, in advertising, as backing tracks for TV, um, apparently Britt Daniel even does like a karaoke scene in Veronica Mars, like to the song Veronica by Elvis Costello. <laughs> Which I didn't know, but when I was looking at stuff, like, what else has Britt Daniel done for this podcast? It's really kind of staggering how many Spoon songs are in things that you like and have watched. Yeah, like the Simpsons have used a Spoon song. There you go. So it doesn't get more ubiquitous than that or than, like, a car commercial. Um, I Turn My Camera On is on this film soundtrack. It's also been in 
probably at least six other film soundtracks. Well, it's in the movie, but it's not actually on the soundtrack. Is it not on the soundtrack? Stop. And I don't know. I don't understand why. It's like you have seven other Spoon songs. Like, did you go over budget at this point? Over budget. But Daddy was like, no, you can't have that. People need to buy Gimme Fiction or yeah, whatever. Uh, That's really weird because it's in this really extended part of the movie where Will Ferrell is buying a guitar. Right. So it's also weird because it's not like this movie has so many songs that they used here and there, like peppered in that they're like, okay, we can't have like a 47 track soundtrack here. We have to cut something like music is used very sparingly in this film. So it's just super bizarre that they wouldn't include it. That is interesting. Maybe it does have something to do with them trying to pump album sales for like, you have to get this in another way. I don't know. I'm trying to bring myself back to 2006 and how people were buying and consuming music. <laughs> there are these things called, I think, CDs. I don't yeah, know. Do they, yeah. Do they go with the DVDs. <laughs> right. Was that a laser disc? Like, how did that work? I can't quite remember. <laughs> it's an audio DVD called a CD. <laughs> it's kind of hard to find information about how this came to be. I don't know if you dug anything up, Brian. Like, obviously, Brett Daniel has talked about it. Um, he talks about how proud he is of it and how he'd love to do another movie soundtrack in the future. But he's obviously too busy being prolific to stop and do movie soundtracky things. But yeah, I don't, I don't really know how this collaboration exactly came about. Did the director request him? I remember reading a interview when the movie came out. I believe it was like an MTV.com slash news interview. So not on MTV, but on their website. And I forget if it was a producer maybe, or maybe it was Brian Reitzel. But I believe the person was like, Spoon just released an album recently called Gimme Fiction, and our movie's called Stranger Than Fiction. So, we, and I was like, that's not a real thing. Like, that's that not how licensing works. That can be real, but it also can be. I also believe it. And I'm, I'm assuming whoever, maybe Brian Reitzel, the, the soundtrack supervisor, co scorer of this film, he probably knew of Spoon. I'm assuming since, you know, he seems to know of good bands you know he's Sofia Coppola's go-to guy and you know Friday Night Lights I feel like is a really important soundtrack to a lot of people so I assume he knew who they were and this was just kind of some sort of PR move to kind of connect the similarity of the last of of the movie title and the last Spoon album like I'm sure he already had Britt Daniel in mind but it was like oh look at that coincidence like let's just pump this up as some sort of like stranger than fiction similarity. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> you know what I picture though? I picture there being like a boardroom with a bunch of like executives from the movie studio. Like we we don't know this Brett Daniel. I don't know if that's how movie studio execs talk. <laughs> we don't know this spoon. What is it? Is it a fork? Is it a spoon? And then somebody's like, well, you see their album has fiction in it and our movie has fiction in the title. So... Synergy. (laughs) And that's how it came to be. And that's how it came to be. Just throwing this out there, but like movie titles are like one of the last things to come about. And it has like very little to do with the actual like creators. And it has so many cooks in the kitchen to determine like a movie title. And it, I'm not saying that there are better titles out there for this movie, 
but it is a little bit on the nose and the tone of the title is slightly off from the film itself. So I, it's not hard to believe that maybe someone was kind of like digging in there and like influenced the title of the movie itself. It's not inconceivable. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think any of it is inconceivable. I had kind of assumed that maybe that was a baked in part of the scripting when it was written, just because it, there's so much kind of like interwoven literary criticism and um, references in this film, because it is very much like a film about writing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I can see it going either way. It's a chicken eggy situation. <laughs> you don't know. I don't know the actual answer, but I think Brand is maybe onto something because the person who wrote the screenplay, Zach Helm, this was his first feature, so I'm sure he probably had a little bit less creative license over things like the title of the film than, you know, I don't know, Aaron Sorkin would. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. What I had assumed, because the fiction thing didn't even occur to me, because it's just too, like, hammer on the head obvious, I had assumed that maybe they chose Spoon because there's such a, like, quintessential Chicago indie scene band and this film is set in Chicago and I was like maybe that's the connection but that makes sense overthinking it I think we've gone over this before but is she is Spoon a Chicago band I I just I kind of like associate them with that scene and a lot of artists out of that scene even though I know they're they're from Texas they're from Austin right but I do think that like I mean, they have a song called Chicago at Night, right? So, like, Early Spoon feels very metropolitan Chicago to me for some reason. And, again, feel free to correct me. Maybe that's completely weird and wrong. But it feels like it fits the setting in a strange way. The Early Spoon tracks that they use in particular feel that way. Like, the opening scene to The Way We Get By feels like a really nice match, for example. And that song is interesting in this movie because... It kind of gave Spoon a career boost when it was used in the OC a few years before that. Who <laughs> tell? Because I actually have no idea about this OC connection. What you missed, dear listeners, is like the simultaneous flinch that Nicole and I had at the mention of the OC. <laughs> Wish you could. Have. I mean, when you're from Southern California, the OC I think means something a little bit different. <laughs> I was talking about the TV show. Yeah, no, I know you're talking about the TV show. Yeah, the OC, the TV show, means something a little bit different. I think people from other parts of the country can be like, that was a fun show. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, it's so cool. It's like totally like the OC, right? And it's like, oh God. Yeah, and we're like, oh cool, that ruined our lives with out-of-town people that really thought that was like a, you know, biographical (laughs) real thing. So that is in the OC because I had no idea that that was... Featured. Yeah, I remember after Kill the Moonlight came out, which was the album before, Gimme Fiction, that song like was on one of those OC compilations. They had like three or four of them. Yeah. I think everyone kind of knows the OC as giving like Death Cab a huge boost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yep. I feel like it gave Spoon like a pretty decent sized boost as well, which is funny because like they never play that song live. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe the OC ruined it for them, honestly. Like, it ruined so many other things for the rest of us. It's like, I appreciate the boost in popularity, but also no thanks. (laughs) Uh, Nicole, I don't know if you've read the same interview with Britt Daniel, but he did one about, you know, licensing and soundtrack songs. And he was like, you know, I'll be honest, like, I haven't 
watched everything that my music has been used in. <laughs> um, I could. So what's funny is that again, they're so prolific and they're such hit makers. But in like that stealth way where it, you've definitely heard their songs, even if you've never like sought out a Spoon album, like you know who they are because that's how much they've permeated kind of like the cultural landscape. What's funny to me is that like, I don't think he gives a rip. I think he's just all about that bag. And I kind of respect it. I'm like, yeah, Brett Daniel, like get that bag. I Like as a person advertising, I think I have at least like two dead concepts and some old like decks somewhere that are based, like, if not solely, at least partly on a Spoon song. <laughs> because I just know, like, we could probably get that. They'd probably yeah. be cool with it. I caught when you were like, oh, yeah, and, like, in a car commercial. And I was like, is it in a car commercial because of you? Because that doesn't count. <laughs> right. I know. But I, I think the um, I think the funny thing to me was, like, whenever I've heard him talk about it, it's it's very flippant. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. We don't really turn anything down. And the only thing that I could find where he talked about turning something down was a, a Hummer commercial. <laughs> oh, we, the Hummer came to us and we turned that down. But that was the one thing that he could cite is like a nah. <laughs> nah. And the rest of it is open season. Yeah, his career is kind of fascinating as far as, I guess, see, he doesn't even like being called an indie rock musician. He's like, I don't see Spoon as indie rock. I just see Spoon as a rock band. Yeah. But his career starts, so they start on Matador Records which is one of the premier independent record labels. <laughs> and they immediately jump to a major label for their second full-length series of... Is it Series of Sneaks? Series of Sneaks. Series of so, Sneaks. I was like, I'm going to tell Ryan, but I also don't want to correct Ryan. <laughs> There's this thing called editing. So they immediately get dropped after releasing that album. And then they end up on Merge Records, which is a very... I wouldn't say as big as Matador, but like, you know, a very prominent indie label. And that's where they kind of relaunched their career. I would say most bands at this point probably will break up. They somehow, after getting dropped, they become more popular. And then he just kind of has like this attitude of like zigging where the rest of like the indie community zags. Like he's like, yeah, license all my music. Who cares? Like before, like everyone started doing it. You know, and then now they're back on Matador, which is kind of a funny sort of full circle thing. Not to get like super music industry-ish, but. Yeah, it's funny. I think maybe some of the zigzagging they've been able to do is, and this is just conjecture, but maybe it's partly based on the idea that they've been able to find some commercial success or enough of it to be like, yeah, I don't care if my song is on the OC. If we get paid and we can get paid to make more music, then the cycle sort of continues. Whereas I think a lot of bands start to fight over money and they flame out. I can kind of respect the idea of like, no, we're, we're just going to sell out as much as we can for as long as we can. You're like, never underestimate how big of a paycheck those like commercial, commercial licensing things pull you. Like all the merch, all the tours, all the album sales, like honestly, probably not even like a drop in the water compared to like some of those commercial like deals that you can pull. So like, if you can be like super comfortable because of a few things that you're like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine on the OC. And then you're like free to go make music as you wish without having that like monkey on your back and like that mm-hmm. pressure, then yeah, I can see how that would totally help bands staying together, even if they're like hopping between labels, because who cares? They'll make the music the final way to get it out there. And like I said, they've been doing this since, you know, the early aughts where it wasn't as 
accepted that an independent artist would do that. Now it's like, well, streaming pays you shit, so go get that bag however you can, as long as you're not like, I don't know, supporting some warmonger, like... Yeah. As long as you're not, you know, supporting like the poisoning of the water in Flint somehow. Right. (laughs) Have an ethical boundary, but also, you know, don't worry too much about your song being licensed for commercials. Seems like a pretty decent way to go about your music career. I like how the thesis of this podcast has now become Daniel, number one hustler. (laughs) Aspire to getting your song in a Super Bowl commercial and then you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, but but I will I will say that like this whole soundtrack foray is is kind of like a it's kind of like an aberration in the spoon trajectory. So again, it's kind of like this unexpected like, huh? They did that, and it it is very effective. I feel like in this film, and I know that there's there's stuff that I read where it's very much intended to be like a nice way to thread the movie, um, which makes sense because the movie is kind of the narration of a book. That's that's the premise is that you're following this unfolding story that's being narrated by Emma Thompson and then being sort of lived out in real life by Will Ferrell's IRS taxman character. Harold Crick. Harold Crick. Um, I have a cat named Harold and I had forgotten that the (laughs) character was named Harold and it was so delightful to me. Yeah, what I found a little bit odd was after rewatching it, finding out that it was released in 2006, because it felt earlier than mm-hmm. that to me. Like it felt way earlier. It felt like from like the set design to like wardrobe to just the tone and the people were chosen to be in it. It felt very like super late 90s, very early 2000s. And so, and I'm not mad about that. Like I loved those aspects of the film as well. So seeing it released in 2006 feels like a little bit of an anomaly. And I'm just like, it's very curious, like, how that came about, too. Yeah, I, I think I made that assumption, too. And then I went back and watched what I could cobble together <laughs> of it. And, and it's it's not at all, like, a 2006 referential. And maybe that's because it's meant to be kind of surreal. So it lives in its mm-hmm. own universe and it lives kind of out of time. You know, the music in it that isn't Spoon is fairly retro, maybe with the exception of, like, the Maximo Park track. Which is very, like, early 2000s. What, right, yeah, which we don't need to talk about the Maximo Park track is on this. Like, every soundtrack has <laughs> a weak link, and that's probably the weak link. Uh, but, I like I, that you song. Know, it's, it's very the jam. <laughs> you know what I wondered, too, is, and maybe you know this, Ryan, is how much hand did Britt Daniel have in selecting these songs that are not Spoon songs on the soundtrack? I think probably zero. I think that's probably where Brian Reitzel... Not to say that Brian Reitzel picked bad songs, but he is the music supervisor and co-scorer, so he probably had a little bit more sway in everything else that was selected for the soundtrack. I'm sure Brett Daniel had say in what Spoon songs were selected, but I think, you know, with Reitzel's resume, I don't think Brett Daniel's going to overrule him on anything. Right. He was probably too busy getting the next car commercial anyway. <laughs> The in church song was like a little bit odd to me. I'm not saying it's like a misstep and I'm not saying that it's a wrong choice. It just definitely stood out. Those like church organs were like, oh, 
that's a choice. And I think definitely like helped me think that it was not a 2006 film. Like Nicole, to your point, that sounded like very retro. And then when I like looked up the soundtrack, I was like, oh, and it's called In Church. So, you know, that's appropriate based on the, um, the musical instrument of choice. But that one just like really stood out to me against all the other songs as mm-hmm. sort of like this weird moment. Granted, it was sort of like in this climactic moment. So maybe that was intentional, but it just felt a little weird having those stretch organs in there. Well, it's not even M83. It's an M83 song that's been remixed. Mm-hmm. And this is what, maybe 10 years before M83 actually had a like radio hit? Mm-hmm. Right, early M83. Came yeah. yeah. So this is super early M83. Where somebody was like, pump up the church organs even more. <laughs> and also one of the songs that has the highest levels of mixing. Because in addition to the soundtrack or the movie not having a lot of music in it, when it did have songs in it, they're usually mixed pretty low. Like it's a very quiet film. But like those church organs, they come in very strong. <laughs> they wanted you to know that was the climactic scene. Right? <laughs> and we're not going to let you forget. Yeah, it's funny because Britt Daniel scored the film with Brian Reitzel, but if you weren't looking out for it, you would almost think that there's no score at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very quiet. But I mean, it works though. Like that having because the narration is so important, I think having those like quiet moments, you like kind of forget that the narration isn't there, and then when the narration comes back, you're like oh, right, you know, so then you're like, wait, but there was a narration, so he had, like, some peace and quiet, you know, and it's like, they're really toying with you, just like the narration is toying with, like, Will Ferrell's character, Mm -hmm. and I think that if this was just chock full of music and mixed at a higher level, you know, maybe that wouldn't, like, be as obvious. I think that, like, starkness, like, really helps, but, you know, obviously you need some music in there and those original scores, you know, it's for those, like, pivotal scenes, those transitions, and I think that what they did works really well. Yeah, and one of the things that I had also read about his process with Brian Reitzel is that they were very much intentionally looking at the scenes and then trying to find instruments that would fit those scenes instead of the other way around where you kind of, you know, think of it on paper and you build something out, you compose something. Like, they really wanted it to feel, I think, more organic to what was happening. So the, yeah, kind of interstitial musical moments, they definitely feel supportive and they don't feel like they're taking over in any way but at the same time you know you get I think the parts of the movie that have more to do with the evolution of the main story that are the spoon tracks that feel very connected um like it's very weird that that guitar shop I turned my camera on song is not on the soundtrack that's yet another mystery of this film but um yeah or like the fact that he learns to play guitar and then you get this moment of Will Ferrell singing (laughs) <laughs> like in a serious way, like in a sincere way, not in a comic way. Yes, not, not in, in a Will Ferrell way. <laughs> no, not in a Will Ferrell way. So like if, if for some reason you haven't seen this movie and maybe you're coming at this just for the soundtrack, um, it's you think of Will Ferrell singing and it's like, I'm singing, like from Elf, right? I'm or Afternoon Delight. <laughs> from Anchorman. Yeah, exactly. Like you think of it being, um, you know, absurd. And it's not. So like the framework is like you get this um, you get this song called Whole Wide World by this kind of like forgotten 70s English band called Reckless Eric. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's a it's a romantic scene between him and Maggie Gleanhall, where he's like just learned to play guitar and he only knows this one song, and he starts kind of strumming and, and quietly singing it, and that's the moment that they know that like they want to be together. And it's like really nice. It's like a very nice, effective movie moment because he sings part of it. And then the actual song, the actual track, like starts to play and is like the big crescendo to them, like, you know, whatever, like making out. Yeah, it switches from diegetic to non diegetic. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Work those terms in there. Yeah, Make I need it to use all film terms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> diegetic people, that's your, uh, that is your vocab word for the day. Mm-hmm. No, but he actually sings. It for a while like it's not just like okay well we have to get like the bare minimum of like will ferrell singing so it's like he's singing to her cool 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 but then cut the song in as soon as you can like we hang on him singing for an extended period of time like i want to say it's at least a whole verse and then part of the chorus and well, it's like he's just really- staring at him yeah right <laughs> she put a door frame her mouth like this is amazing um it's like it's really sweet but it works so well and like will ferrell just like does a great job of pulling it off and just in general, I want to like praise him for and the director for holding him to like this amazing restraint of being not Will Ferrell in this film. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it works out so well. Like there's tiny moments of Will Ferrell, but still like only at like 5%. Yeah, and I'm glad how they handled this, you know, he's this basically boring guy who needs to change his life. And so I guess the really like easy go-to trope is like i'm gonna finally learn how to play guitar Mm -hmm. and they handle that pretty well where you know i think i texted you guys it's a two song it's a it's a two chord song (laughs) so at least it's realistic like if he's gonna learn a song to sing to someone it should be as basic as possible yes uh, speaking of that scene and i'm gonna cut this because i've already complained about this before but (laughs) how this works, you know, Will Ferrell learning to play guitar and to use it in this movie to show him growing or showing him seizing the day works a lot better than Jim Carrey learning to play the guitar. In <laughs> I Man. knew it. As soon as you were like, I've said this before. I'm like, and then you said like the guitar thing. I'm like, what is he referencing before? And I was like, oh, it's the Jim Carrey thing. Because <laughs> he talks a person off, literally off the ledge of a it's building. Terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's if anything, it's irresponsible to put that in the movie so that people might think like, oh, if this ever happens to me in real life, all I need to do is play them a song and everything will be okay. And it's a third eye blind song. <laughs> Honestly, if there's one thing more reliable than Spoon's ability to make hits, it's Ryan's ability to bring up this scene from Yes Man. <laughs> you bring it up so much. And it's terrible. It, it deserves bashing because it's terrible. Yeah, and I, don't think and I cut watch. it out every time. No, you should. What? You've been cutting it out? I think I might have kept it once. What? No, this needs to be like a thing so we can continue it on like our bingo card. Like, yeah, tell the people. Tell the people how bad that scene is. Ryan bashes Jim Carrey playing guitar in Yes Man. <laughs> Check. He talks Luis Guzman from jumping off a building by playing him a third eye blind song <laughs> on an acoustic guitar. I have to say at this that point. That he had there. just started learned that he just started learning <laughs> to play. Which is unrealistic. They actually handled quite a few cliches, like 
very well in that like one, the whole movie, right, is about like carpe diem, seize the day, like don't, you know, like not appreciate the little like mundane things, right? Which is totally cliche, but this film is very fresh, very unique, and you don't even realize that that's the trope that you're like really hitting until kind of like the end and you're like, holy shit. I feel like I just had the rug pulled out from under me because this is like a carpe diem film, right? And then two, the whole like, oh, I'm going to learn a guitar, not necessarily to impress the girl, but I'm finally going to do that thing, learn to play the guitar because, you know, every single person has always been like since they're a kid, I'm going to learn to play the guitar. And, you know, they do that, but it's in like this fun and interesting way and handled very realistically. Like, as you said, Ryan, it's not, it doesn't feel like a cliche. And then spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film, um, Will Ferrell's like the big ironic, you know, like death moment or whatever is him being hit by a bus, which I can't say that was necessarily a trope or a cliche when this film was made. But definitely after that, maybe this was like the inspiration. There are so many movies and TV shows that are like, the last thing you're ever going to expect is this character being hit by a bus. And I'll call it every single time. I'm like, oh, they're going to be hit by a bus. Boom. Happens. And it's like, but this film, it's like, it still feels fresh, even though you have Emma Thompson leading up to it and that I need to kill this character in this like fresh, but simple and beautiful way. And you're like, it should be. You roll your eyes and you're like, really? Hit by a bus? Honestly? But it doesn't feel like cliche at all. And so it's just like really speaks to the level of execution of this film and that they're handling a lot of topics that could easily be super cheesy and cliche, but it just works so well. Yeah, and in a movie about writing, you would expect the writing in it to maybe be a little bit more pat or cliche or kind mm-hmm. of eye rolly, but it isn't. It's really very like mm-hmm. fresh and unexpected, and there are great performances in this film. Like this is a pretty stacked cast. Like it's Dustin Hoffman as the like literary prof. It's Emma Thompson as the writer, and she always turns it out. I feel like Emma Thompson comes up like more often than anyone in our podcast for some reason and I'm always like going back her but she just makes things better right she's she's amazing in this and I think Will Ferrell turns out one of the best performances of his entire career like it's just so vulnerable and Mm -hmm. spot on and it's really understated yeah so even though you get like comic elements and you get like these really great because the writing really cracks it's like great line delivery from Will Ferrell it's not like you know, shouty, overdone Will Ferrell. So if that's like what you're expecting, you're not going to get that at all. No, it's honestly, it's the only Will Ferrell movie that I've ever really truly loved and have enjoyed his performance because Will Ferrell is just too much for me. I'm just not a fan of like that kind of comedy, but this is hands down one of my favorite movies. And it's because it's not a Will Ferrell movie, even though he's like the main character. But yeah, just to reiterate on the narration the actual writing, I mean, of the film is great, but the writing, the narration in the film is just like so spot on. And it's so beautiful that it's like, yeah, like you're right. Like anytime there's writing about writing, it comes off as a little bit like, you know, like that purple prose situation. And this is not it. It's very good. Like even that like last line of like, now nah, I'm going to totally butcher because I don't remember the exact wording, but it's just like, you know, like um, his like Harold's wristwatch, like saved him or whatever. Just like that last line was like, it was very good. That wasn't the line, but (laughs) (laughs) I did not deliver it well. And that is not the line. Don't think that that's the line. And I'm like, oh my God, it was so great. Yeah. Delivered in the film was good. (laughs) 
<laughs> Next time we're all going to pick a character and we're just going to like read it because I feel like everybody's going to be like, oh, I want to watch this movie now or rewatch this movie now. And you know what? You're not going to be able to because it doesn't yeah. exist anymore. I did actually feel a little bit like cruel in that. I was like, wait, should we even do this if no one can watch it? That's kind of mean. It's, <laughs> it's also really 15 un- years old. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's so unjust, right? It's just unjust because if you are, you know, searching for something to watch that feels, um, I don't know, interesting, maybe you really love dramatic Will Ferrell and like the two things that he's done that have been even like remotely more dramatic roles. I feel like this would really shock people if you know mm-hmm. present day Will Ferrell. Well, if you really want to watch it, you can um, support our Patreon and me, Brandis, or Nicole will send you our copy on DVD. <laughs> Mail you our DVDs. <laughs> there we go. We've changed the format of this podcast. We will now only be covering films that can no longer be watched on streaming, but we will send you our DVDs and our new DVD service. <laughs> that would actually be a really great thing for Patreon. If anybody's interested in like, I don't know, old DVDs and uh, I don't know, really nicely handwritten notes. Yes, this is now called DVD Your Life. <laughs> Handwritten notes for me will just be construction paper with my daughter scribbling crayon all over it. Yeah, handwritten notes would be just Nicole because my handwriting is illegible. But I'm happy to, again, plug and share my bomb-ass DVD collection. I have great taste. <laughs> uh, speaking of you know, kind of tired tropes that this movie tends to not fall into uh, too much. You know, the love story between um, Will Ferrell's character and and Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, you know, it has that kind of, oh, like she's, you know, loud and she's got tattoos, right? Like, oh, she's, you know, the opposite of him and that's why he likes her. Like, they handle that pretty well and... You know, I think if you have any skept- if you have any skepticism towards that storyline, I think it all gets erased away when he brings her flowers. Mm, yes, which is a very clever way of of playing on that. You know, I brought you flowers. Yeah, Isn't it's, it? it's such a well acted scene, and it's a, it ha- it has a really nice little like understated romantic element. So if you like like a little bit of romance in a movie, but you don't want it to be like the JLo rom-com romance. Like, it's just really nicely done. Like, instead of bringing her, like, a bouquet of, um, you know, flowers, like, from the ground, he brings her flowers that you bake with because she's a baker. And it sounds dumb when I explain it, but it's, like, a really cute scene, and it unfolds, like, in this really, really nice way and feels very, like, sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, like, a very nice little moment with them. It's a very sweet moment and to like hinge on your point of like well acted and it's just like the restraint is when he says I brought you flowers and like the realization hits that he's literally handing her flowers like F-L-O-U-R-S. Yes. There is no line of dialogue that she delivers back. You know what I mean? There is no immediate like hug or like aw or whatever. It's just this very quiet moment of him, of her looking at him and then like her face changes. It's like that right there is just like an anecdote of like how the whole film is handled and just like this very nuanced and like very understated way. And like, that's like why it works so well. But yeah, the flowers is just like the sweetest thing. It is. And from Will Ferrell, right. Of all people. um, An IRS, IRS auditor too. (laughs) It's like IRS auditor would be that romantic. But it reminds you that, you know, I think Will Ferrell has this, like a lot of comedic actors have this kind of like, um, 
this kind of like sadness to him, right? Mm-hmm. They really like exploit well in this movie. He's very like just kind of this every man with, you know, existential problems in this film. And they they do that really, really well. It's like not it makes me sad that this was not his like career arc, that he didn't have like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, two funny movies and then one one like really good dramatic role. Cause he can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, it is sad to me too that he didn't explore more of this potential in his range. Because yeah, like why did Jim Carrey get to do this, but Will Ferrell didn't? That's my question. Yes. Or Sandler. Yeah, him too, right? Like and we need that. No, we didn't need that. <laughs> but regardless, you know, like it happened, right? Like there yeah. there were roles there for him so that it happened. Um Shit, even Arnold Schwarzenegger got to make like a dramatic movie or an action movie and then a comedy every once in a while, right? I feel like Will Ferrell has just been stuck in this cycle of remaking Anchorman for like the last 10 years. That's a bummer. I think it was before his times. I know that you just mentioned like Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler. Those a little bit of like, you know, like blips and like anomalies. But if you think about like, not modern day, modern day, but like more recent like SNL, you know, like actors like um, whose names are completely going to escape me right now, but like the Kristen Wiig era, like they all did, obviously it's SNL. They did hard comedy, like slapstick, you know, again, just like Will Ferrell, he came from SNL, but they did like a very hard turn. Like she did like the whole was skeleton uh, twins with other SNL actor. Who's Bill name Hader, is, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. Hader and like Hader started doing like the more serious stuff. And it's like all of those people started like pulling serious. And I feel like, Will Ferrell was just like before his time, right? It's like now it's like totally accepted where it's like, oh yeah, these hardcore comedians are suddenly going to pull serious. And it's like, yeah, no, but Will Ferrell did that too. And like people just didn't give him scripts or he was just like, no, I'd rather be funny. Like whatever happens, like he didn't make that career jump. Like all of the SNL people are doing now. Honestly, I think it's because this movie didn't do as well as they wanted it to. Which is dumb. Jim Carrey did it for a while because Truman showed you know, he got a lot of accolades for it, but it also did really well at the box office. Yeah, that's true. And I remember trying to contextualize this for myself in 2006 and looking up how it did in the box office. And it was something like opened at number four behind the Santa Claus three. So <laughs> I think that gives some credence to your theory that this really was kind of like an indie under the radar thing. And it didn't rise to the prominence that it, it needed to in order for this to become a marketable deal for Will Ferrell. And then I think his window kind of elapsed maybe, you know, like you're at the peak of your career and he's not at the peak of his career necessarily anymore. He's sort of like that go-to, like we need Will Ferrell, right? Play Will Ferrell. That's where he's at in his career. I I hope maybe he'll find like this Bill Murray thing, right? Where he gets back to this kind of like, you know, older, sad, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like we want to explore what that means with Will Ferrell because I, I, he's got it in him. He's got it in him, guys. Mm-hmm. I think this this film also was a little bit overshadowed by Little Miss Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I know that plot wise, they're not particularly similar movies, but they were both kind of. I, I remember the screenwriters were both getting a lot of press because they were both first time screenwriters. So with this film, it's Zach Helm. And with Little Miss Sunshine, it's Michael Arndt, A-R-N-D-T. And if you look at what they're doing now or what they've done since, 
like Michael Arndt did Toy Story 3. He worked on uh, episode seven and nine of Star Wars with J.J. Abrams, whether you like them or not. We can, well, that's a different podcast, but, you know, as far as like, high profile gigs. Yeah, yeah big page. Like, big, big it's deal. the screenwriter's dream of being, you write this indie script, it gets made into a movie, and now you're working for the Disney machine or whoever, you know? Yeah. Zach Helm did Mr. Uh, Magoo's, not Mr. Magoo, sorry. <laughs> what is that movie called? Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium. Oh, yeah. I vaguely oh. remember hearing about that. So after Stranger Than Fiction, he did that, and then he didn't do anything else until 2022. Yikes. At least as far as films go. Yeah. So I feel like those two writers in my mind are kind of interlinked. Mm. And you got to, and you saw what happens when your first time screenplay becomes a huge monster of a hit. You know, Little Miss Sunshine was nominated for Oscars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like remember in the time, like Little Miss Sunshine, just everyone knowing about it, everyone talking about it. Like there was so much PR buzz outside of the industry. Just like everyone had heard of that movie versus. I literally can't go back in my head and remember any sort of promotion for Stranger Than Fiction. Or I couldn't even have told you like when it came out. Like I just know that it was a film that I saw at some point in my life and loved it and then bought it. And then like now it's like one of my favorite films, right? But I can't contextualize it in my life of like it entering theaters versus like Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, I remember like the posters. I remember like the trailers. I remember like all that stuff. It was just like this huge thing. So them coming out at the same time, like absolutely whether they're similar or like, you know, share like stylistic, whatever, so that they would be competitors or not. Like definitely Little Miss Sunshine just took all of the hype out. Yeah, I guess maybe it did just get, I think in general, overshadowed. Maybe it was just a little bit too small and too quiet and too weird. And there were other things that felt um, like they were easier to like attach themselves to or something. Because it is weird. It's a weird film. Um, It's kind of semi-serious and semi-depressing, too. It's not, like, the most upbeat. (laughs) You don't get, like, a Rick James dance in this film. It doesn't have those, like, you know, big moments, I suppose. Because I don't remember the trailer, and I haven't watched the trailer since. Um, I think I brought this up in another one of, like, the episodes, but the Adam Sandler movie Click. Mm Mm-hmm was completely mismarketed and it really hurt like the box office for that film because it's Adam Sandler, right? So you're expecting an Adam Sandler film and they marketed it as an Adam Sandler film. And then you right. go and it's this tragic, heart-wrenching, why did you make me watch this so depressing film that then no one went to see it because it's like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. So the trailer for Click is just Adam Sandler punching David Hasselhoff in the face. <laughs> You go in with like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's going to be Adam Sandler. And then it's not. It's like total like mismarketed, like whatever. So maybe, again, maybe the trailer like totally doesn't prop this up. I don't know. But maybe that's like kind of what happened to this film too, right? Like people have an idea of Will Ferrell. You think it's going to be a Will Ferrell film. And while it's not depressing, it does have this like feel good, like pulls your heartstring moments. It's obviously not like, a laugh out loud comedy, like super silly thing either, right? Like it's poignant. 
And maybe that's just not what people were looking for when they went to the box office. And then they told people, oh, my God, that's not, uh, don't go see it. Not because it's a film, but it's not a Will Ferrell film, right? I remember based on seeing the trailer, the movie delivered on what you see in the trailer. Okay. So I think that was accurate. Yeah. It's not like Click where you're like, oh, this is a much more sad movie than I thought I was going to (laughs) get. It was accurate, but, you know, maybe it's just, maybe it was just a matter of it wasn't what people wanted or expected out of a Will Ferrell movie. And therefore it just kind of got sidelined because now I'm in the process of like going down the wormhole of like, okay, well, what had Will Ferrell already done to this point? And he had already done Anchorman. It looks like Talladega Nights came out like months before. which you know is like a very funny film and enjoyable and it's in its own right if you're if you're into that um i think at that point we haven't we hadn't become like oversaturated with that same will ferrell character and like heightenedness but yeah if like that's just what you saw like a couple of months ago and then you go see stranger than fiction it's probably not gonna resonate with like a more mainstream audience and then it's got spoon which is you know like you're gonna draw in the spoon fans and we're loud but maybe we're not legion right um given that that's a more kind of under the radar band in terms of recognition too just didn't have the components Also, Little Miss Sunshine had Steve Carell making kind of a dramatic turn, and maybe that was too many people from Anchorman trying to do drama at once. (laughs) That's what it was. It was the Anchorman, like, warfare. It was like, can't share the same turf. And uh, like, what's next? Paul Rudd doing a serious movie? (laughs) Oh, my God, I love that theory. Like, not too many people from the Anchorman franchise can go on to be dramatic actors because the world just can't accept that. Yeah. I like I love this theory. <laughs> Great theory. Now, in terms of if you're gonna say that like the spoon army is driving the awareness of this film, then I will say the second army or group of people who drive the awareness of this film is advertising people, of which we are, because the motion tracked supers or graphics in this movie, which I can't really say definitively were like that new and fresh at that time but it's honestly like the only like standout reference that stands out in any advertising person's mind so anytime you're like we're gonna have motion track like overlays you're Mm saying like do it like stranger than fiction like every advertising creative when you want that look you reference stranger than fiction so you're the other like 50 percent of the audience who knows this movie (laughs) yeah so you're 100 percent right like of course, everybody is probably already like on to this dirty secret. But if you work in advertising, like you basically just steal better things for your things. And so whenever it comes up, it's like, oh, put together like a list of title sequences that we can reference. So we know how we're, you know, applying these motion graphics or whatever. And that's definitely like top of the list. And I think it's been top of the list for a super long time. It's just like super nicely executed and all yeah. goes together like really well. Um, again, like really great opening sequence only buttressed by like this spoon song that it has with it. It's just, it's like a great sequence. Yeah. We've now identified the entirety of the audience of this film, spoon fans and advertising. (laughs) (laughs) So when I first heard that Britt Daniel was scoring this film, because I didn't know who Brian Reitzel was at the time, I think I just thought it was going to be like, I got my camera on instrumental for like 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of how I feel whenever I find out that like someone um, 
like some rock musician that I like is doing a a score other than Mark Mothersbar, Danny Elfman, because they made music before you know I started listening to their music. So that's kind of what I thought I was gonna get. Obviously, they chose a much more tactful route. But have you heard his remix of Interpol's Slow Hands, Nicole? No, I haven't. So you know, most times when you hear a remix, they usually add stuff to the song like i'm gonna add some synthesizers or i'm gonna change the beat or whatever right like that's usually what you expect out of a remix or maybe a lot more church organs (laughs) for sure sure. church organs yeah so for this interpol remix he basically just strips out paul banks's guitar so it just sounds like a drum and bass disco song (laughs) so he just takes out like you know there's so there's two guitars on the track on in the song right because interpol has two guitarists and he just like takes out the rhythm guitar track and that's his remix. Like he just removed something <laughs> and it sounds good. But because like that came out a couple years before this movie, I was like, it's just going to be basically just drum and bass and maybe just like a piano here and there. So I was like very surprised at what we got. I can see why you might think that. <laughs> Maybe they had to rein him in. Maybe he came on the scene and he was like, you know what? We're going to do this entire thing with no guitars. If it's not like spoon guitars, (laughs) they're out. (laughs) No guitars. Nobody gets them. Like, can you imagine Interpol receiving this remix and Paul Banks being like, where'd my guitar go? (laughs) But also, honestly, kind of like supports this whole like, I don't know, Brett Daniel is just like the dude in terms of his like philosophy about life. Like he didn't want to try hard with this remix. He's just like, let's just remove this and then we're done. It's a better song without it. (laughs) This feels very personal, right? It's like you have a band and it's like everyone's doing their part and then you get this like remix and back to you and it's like, all I did was eliminate you. (laughs) Right. It does. Like maybe he doesn't like like their guitarists or something. Like it feels like an attack. You know, it's like, oh, that person over there, like let's just turn down their volume until uh you can't hear them sing at all. Yeah, that's not a remix, that's an edit. <laughs> Either that example or his contributions to the soundtrack, however minor or major they might be, are really like um advocacy for him being like a composer like i don't know if we want to put him in charge of like scoring per se but i mean these spoon songs really work in the film so he's good at like lending out music for sure (laughs) like 100 percent that no i think his score work here is fine though i'm not sure how much of it is him and how much of his brian reitzel behind the scenes right kind of difficult to know It, it almost feels like he's kind of well now this sounds like this is a terrible thing to say because we don't know but it's like are you there in name only did you like you know pick up a washboard at some point and you never know like how much of a collaboration it really is there's interviews saying that they work together and i'm sure they did but like i said when i bought the album on itunes when it came out it was credited just to him and now when you look at it it's credited to both of them right i thought it was very strange that they felt like they needed to really market his name like people were going to somehow be confused by him collaborating with someone else. It is odd. I mean, just because credits are such a like, you know, like looked at thing, right? Like everyone's like so militant about how credits are given out. The order of credits, especially in the film industry, like that's 
really huge, right? Like that means something. So for someone to be just like eliminated entirely for the initial release of something is like a very large statement. It's also just kind of like it, it's a weird and unorthodox way to go about cobbling together a soundtrack. Like I'm going to borrow this band's songs to put on the soundtrack as like our connective thread, but then we're also going to like hang out and put together like the score together kind of. And it begs the question of like how much of the songs that were chosen that are not spoon are like influenced by Brett Daniel at all. Like cause they do some of them kind of feel like these very like, I don't know, like 70s, like power pop kind of things that you can see like maybe being influential on on Brent Daniel and Spoon. Like you can see maybe like the jam that's entertainment being something they're like, oh yeah, sure, that fits with my songs. Like was that a conversation? Like it's got to live alongside my songs because they're the hero songs of this movie. I just don't see a Spoon fan walking into a record store, pulling up the soundtrack and being like, Brian writes, I don't know who that is. I don't want to buy the soundtrack anymore. <laughs> Well, but they were worried because that was 50% of the audience. <laughs> it was. Well, I, mean, I only wanted this down. to be pure Brit Daniel. I don't like the fact that it's Brit Daniel and someone else writing <laughs> three score tracks. <laughs> I mean, especially because Brian Reitzel seems to be a person that would put together soundtracks that a Spoon fan would like. You know, like Lost in Translation seems like it'd be right up their alley friday night lights as well it's not like you know he put together the soundtrack to sing too where apparently you two wrote a new song for a bunch of animated characters to sing maybe it had nothing to do with the marketing and maybe it was some sort of like weird contractual thing where they literally couldn't at the time put that dude's name on it and say that he was like involved as heavily as he was maybe he was committed to something else and this was like him moonlighting or something and then like later when they like re-released it like didn't matter yeah i don't know i just thought that was kind of funny because i was like who i thought this was just a brit daniel score and then i was like well clearly i have to figure out who this guy is right well it's almost like having a ghostwriter or something mm-hmm. because it's not like that guy got the headline credit for anything that happened on the soundtrack it's not how people know it or regard it right they regard it as like the brit daniel soundtrack I think he gets like way more billing for what was done here, but is that accurate or like who knows, right? Yeah, the new Spoon album is great. I'm just here to like tell people that it's it's great. Still making bangers after all these years. Still keeping their albums under like 45 minutes, right? Just like a tight album, like full of like really no filler and just like great songs. Like how many bands can say they've been doing that consistently for as long as Spoon? And they're still getting licensed for movies pretty consistently. I believe after this, I saw them immediately get licensed and I love you, man. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep so many movies like there could be a whole podcast just dedicated to like movie and television scenes that spoon has contributed to because they're everywhere on soundtracks which is just in my opinion (laughs) maximum park isn't so there you go like that's that's sort of the point that i was trying to make because i feel like it's maybe a little bit of a sore thumb you know every soundtrack has that one song that was probably like really hot at the time but it's just not that fun to listen to now. So if you're going to like go back, listen to it, take a walk on some headphones, which is like what I usually do. Like how much of this soundtrack am I going to get through? 
It's a pretty good soundtrack, except for like maybe a couple exceptions. And that Reckless Eric song kind of made a comeback as well. I mean, it's a great song, right? It fits the moment in the movie. And it's it's just, a you know, one of those like kind of catchy one hit wonderish songs. Maybe it's not a one hit wonder if you're from like the UK or wherever that band originated. Because I think Cage the Elephant recorded a version of it a few years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's been a, like maybe a couple cover versions of that song because it's just, you know, easy to play. Spoon <laughs> went to go uh, open for them. <laughs> there you go. Full circle. In summary, this is an underrated film and it's a great soundtrack and it still holds up. I mean, we should probably save those things maybe to close it out. But um, yeah, if you're interested in an underrated Will Ferrell film that you can't see anywhere. Maybe start some kind of online petition. <laughs> Help us yeah. with some like change.org petition to bring this movie to the people. It's extremely hard to find, but Netflix actually does have a place where you can request movies or TV shows. So everyone rally together. Everyone requests Stranger Than Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> they really have that? That's a thing that they have? Yes, I actually found it because I was so mad that they didn't have the second season of Welcome to the Family, even though, like, the Catalan, like, TV uh, station that it came from, like, has it online publicly. So anyone can watch it. It just doesn't have English subtitles. And I don't speak Catalan. And they don't even have Spanish subtitles because it's Catalan. And they're like, no, we're not, we're not, doing, Span- we're not doing Spanish subtitles. So I, like, complained to Netflix because I was like, how do you have season one and not season two when it's in public domain? Or not public work? Have, have you gotten results from this complaint? No, of course not. I'm just okay. So that's that's what seems funny to me, right? Is it next? Like you know, put in your comments and suggestions, and we'll read because them. Like, you know, like, or like if everyone at the same time requests Stranger Than Fiction, I mean, how much would it cost them, honestly? And help Britt Daniel get that bag. <laughs> <laughs> that's the name of the petition. If you do go to change. Don't work. I know. I feel like we need some kind of, um, I don't know, infomercial, right? Where it's like in just two minutes, you could not only bring Stranger Than Fiction to more people, but you could also help Brett Daniel get that bag. <laughs> well, thanks, Brandis and Nicole, for talking about this unavailable movie. <laughs> we will never see. Go watch it. Just kidding. You go to your local thrift store. Find the DVD. The library. But the soundtrack is readily available. Yeah, stream the soundtrack and then, you know, maybe go to your local library, get a DVD. So you can find us on Twitter at soundtrack underscore your and Instagram at soundtrackcast. Buy me at coffee.com slash soundtrackcast if you would like to support us financially. Help us get that bag. Help us get that bag. And if you're interested in being a guest or if you want to shoot us an email with some comments, you can find out information about how to do that at SoundtrackYourLife.net. So we'll be back again to talk about hopefully a movie that you can find. (laughs) We'll maybe think about that beforehand. Yeah, chase your dreams. Until then, chase that bag. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.